Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. We want to kick off 2018 by discussing a very modern problem, jurors disregarding the testimony of expert witnesses. Jurors are armed with Google and too many courtroom dramas on TV, and they've made it harder for attorneys to use experts to win their case. Our senior trials reporter, Daniel Siegel, will be joining us a little later in the show to talk about the strategies lawyers can use to win cases despite this new reality. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about an insurance company refusing to cover a claim of damaged machinery at a British recycling plant, which sounds pretty boring until you hear one of the reasons the claim was rejected. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. It's nice to be back in the booth, guys. Yeah. Barely um, barely made it here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, just to prove our dedication to our listeners, we're recording this on Thursday in Manhattan. With like right in the middle of a blizzard. With the Arctic Nitro Thunder Slam or whatever <laughs> we're calling it. Yeah, it's a, it's a new year. We've got new exciting things to talk about. And we started with the weather. It's really cool. Like, I, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the weather is notable. I mean, I did have to <laughs> I'm bundle I'm happy everybody up. made it in. Well, I did have to bundle up like a Sherpa. I came in yeah. and had on like the scarf all wrapped around, you know, that whole look. So Glad that DC's handling it well, too. Yeah. They appear to be They never melting, forgot about snow. Melting about, down. It's about uh, status quo over about an inch of snow on the ground. Sure, right? yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, Alex and I both at various points lived in D.C. And yeah, they freak out about all the snow. And they're also freaking out about Donald Trump. Well, Still. that's not too unusual either. So 2018 <laughs> New is year, same as the same old as, year. Yeah. Yeah. Bombshell allegations yeah. about the Trump White House, which I guess we were all expecting at some point. But And now he's threatening bit, to sue people. But you and, know what? I didn't expect the bombshell allegations to be in book form. Or from Steve Bannon. Also that. So now uh, Trump is threatening to sue the publisher to stop the book that's supposed to come out next week. Yeah, the, yeah they, the various – I know New York Mag and then I think somewhere else published some of the Michael Wolff book that basically had Bannon saying that Trump was all like checked out and that well, – Then he was, never thought he would win. And that and... Trump Jr. was acted treasonously and, and all sorts of stuff. And now there's – yeah, now he's they, they've sent a C&D letter. And did you see the new thing is that no. they're actually releasing the book tomorrow instead of like four uh, days from now. So so much for cease and desist letters right. as that is. Well, because it already shipped all the book. I mean – I know. It's a whole we, – we're, we're not talking about this as an actual story, which you talked about before we started recording, because it's entire – we are of the opinion, or at least I am – I don't. I mean, I don't think any litigation will ever come of this. I could be wrong, and I mean, no. I mean, I wrote a story last year about Trump threatening people, threatening the guy who wrote the Art of the Deal, and it's well known in in it was well known in the world of New York media that if you wrote a story about Trump, yeah. you were going to get a cease and desist right. and probably not get sued. Yeah, we do have more pressing actual legal uh, matters, I think, to deal with. So I think that. So good. let's talk about let's talk about what happened today with uh, Jeff Sessions. Yeah. and because um, that's sort of the big breaking thing. That yeah, happened this I mean, morning. we literally came back 2018, and there was no like easing into the new year. We've got a lot of big news. So what exactly did Sessions do? Well, so he. This morning, um, Thursday, for, Thursday, yeah. right? He revoked uh, an Obama era policy that that eased the enforcement of federal marijuana laws in states that that have legalized marijuana, um, creating a lot of uncertainty and already a lot of pushback. Some of it from Republicans who are from some of those states that have legalized. So, can we just sort of lay the landscape of what's gone on with the state laws versus the federal law, so people understand why that's important? Yeah, I think it's good to rewind from to sort of explain what Sessions did. Um, uh, so we've seen over the last decade, state after state has have legalized. There's 29 different states now that have either medical or full recreational marijuana. Bunch more to come in the next few years. Um, but despite that, the the drug has remained illegal at the federal level. So that's created this weird sort of halfway situation where mm -hmm. there's this 10 billion dollar industry. It's supposed to grow to 20 billion in the next three years. That's operating legally in you know half the country, 
but it's also still federally illegal and constantly a threat of, of prosecution. So mm -hmm. to deal with that over the last few years, the Obama administration took steps to reassure businesses in those states that they weren't suddenly going to face this massive crackdown mm -hmm. because the law was sort of hanging over them like this sort of Damocles kind of thing. Yeah. So in 2009 and 2013, the DOJ yeah. issued these memoranda saying, look, if you follow your state laws and the state's strictly regulate the way that it works there. Mind your house. Exactly. You do your thing well. We will deprioritize this. This is not something that we are going to spend our finite prosecutorial dollars and time on. We're going to stick to, you know, s marijuana that's being sold to kids, marijuana that's being sold by organized crime yeah, to really pay for other stuff, stuff, violent crime that's mm -hmm. associated with marijuana. Um, transporting across state borders to states where it's still legal because that's obviously still within the purview of the federal and government. And this is a lot like other things the Obama administration did during this era. They did it about this and they did it about immigration that I can think yeah. of where they said like, we're going to prioritize what we're prosecuting. We're going to go after the worst things. Right. Yeah, they got into a thing about prosecutorial discretion yeah. and like we have the right to like, you know, prioritize sure. things like that. So Sessions- So on yeah. Thursday, on this morning, Sessions issued his own memorandum uh, rescinding the Obama era guidances. What and what do those say exactly? What is like what are these mechanisms? The, the, he just issued his own sort of decree. Like, yeah. What so, are we looking at? So now Sessions has been. I mean, Sessions is known as like a drug prohibitionist. Yeah. He is. He like he is a drug war guy. Like yeah. lo, like that. That is that's what that's what gets yeah. him up in the morning. And he's also he... old, and I think he was in the original like World War II era or like <laughs> or reefer, reefer madness. Yeah, reefer madness. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, I yeah. mean, when he did get uh, appointed to Attorney General, a lot of people did worry about what would happen with these federal marijuana. I was surprised it took this books. long to be honest. Yeah, yeah but, well, I mean, yeah. I wrote that big story last year and, yeah. and everyone was sort of talking about that of like, you know, if, if Jeff Sessions is the attorney general, like what happens? It seemed like it was this thing that could never go back and, but he was the person who might do it. So on Thursday, he took a step in that direction and he said that, you know, that it was a return to the rule of law was what his announcement said. And, you know, that the, that the guidance had hamstrung local prosecutors and prevented them from from doing their 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 best work. So does that mean that they're going to start going after people in these states? Is that clear? So that's not what he said. He left things super vague. It was this one page memorandum, and basically all it said it didn't it didn't direct the DOJ or or local U.S. attorneys to do anything specific. It just said that rather than these more specific guidelines from the Obama administration about the way that the DOJ is going to operate when it comes to cannabis in legal states, we're just going to follow these more general sort of discretionary guidelines that that mm -hmm. dictate how prosecutors decide to bring any cases. You know, that, that that you don't bring cases you can't win, don't, you know, all sorts of things that like mm -hmm. don't waste your money on 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 things that you shouldn't. So they said that, you know, with those guidelines in place, we don't need these more specific and, ones. Yeah. They uh, have we heard, I've seen things trickling in. What has the uh, response from lawmakers been? Yeah. So there's obviously, you know, you think of, you think of sort of crunchy granola states as the ones who have legalized <laughs> yeah. this, but they're, but you know, Alaska has legalized this. Colorado has, has a Republican Senator. Mm -hmm. So Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, the Senator from Alaska, um, a Republican called it, quote, disruptive to state regulatory regimes and regrettable. Cory Gardner, another Republican senator, this time from Colorado, said that Sessions had, quote, trampled on the will of the voters of Colorado and that um, that he was prepared to take any steps necessary to to sort of push back on this. And that that could include uh, refusing to act on DOJ appointees and things like that. And, and other Republicans have come out against this. Um, and obviously, 
um, Democrats from from states that have legalized have have also made a strong point. So I kind of got you on this a little bit a minute ago, but um, now we have you went through some people that are pushing back. Where does this leave everything? Is it just this murky thing right now? Yeah. So th- there's sort of like a good news and a bad news for the companies that are working in the space. The, the good news is that this by itself is pretty much toothless. It's it's more of a symbolic thing. It's more of like a first step thing. Um, there's a federal appropriations rule that bars the DOJ from um, using any federal funds to prevent end quote, um, states from implementing their their state cannabis laws. And yeah, that's yeah. been interpreted by courts to sort of prevent prosecution. So they're really hamstrung in in, in like any ability to really yeah, you can't ramp. unwind the laws. Exactly. Like and that. then and and as you just said, it is so big at this point and mm-hmm. and Yeah, it'd be you know, hard and to go after such a, a big industry. Well, it's a, uh, such a well funded industry, you sure. know, that they've they've started retaining really big law firms. They've started they coming up with with legal processes so it would just be so much more than the DOJ I think could could bite off mm-hmm. to really ramp up federal uh, prosecution of of marijuana laws again that sounds pretty promising but it seems like um it may hamper continued growth, I guess. Well, that's... Because it's well, coming at such an interesting time, like you already said. I well, mean, California just, their law went into mm-hmm. effect like three days ago. Right. So that right. was, <laughs> people asked people asked that today, like, the, you know, was this tied to that? And the DOJ said no. But I mean, it's it's like the, it's like a, a California is like a national economy. Yeah. Sure. They just legalized mm-hmm. recreational marijuana. So it's, it's coming at an interesting time. And a, a lot of people say the word you heard a lot today was undermine, that, mm-hmm. that it's not going to lead to this DOJ crackdown, but it's going to sort of slow the progress of legalization because it will there are all sorts of things that the legal marijuana industry because of the federal prohibition can't have access to banks can't mm-hmm. have yeah. ac- have a difficult time with insurance uh, a lot of law firms we, we we've written about law firms getting into it but there's a ton of law firms that are sitting on the sidelines because they don't know what the legal status is all sorts of big sort of institutional things that have that are more risk averse mm-hmm they're the ones sitting on the sidelines, and this is certainly not going to push them to to get involved. So in that way, it slows down the the kind of things that have to happen for marijuana to really break through and become a mainstream industry. Yeah, it sounds like we can slow down the train but not stop it. Totally. And of course, the Sessions uh, marijuana action was not the only thing going on in D.C. this week. Um, we have talked extensively in the past uh, about the legal action and the legal uh, processes that are arising from special counsel Robert Mueller's ongoing investigation uh, of Russian meddling in the 2016 election mm-hmm. and the Trump campaign's uh, possible role in that. Now, thus far, as you can imagine, it's mostly been Mueller and his team that has been you know, the instigator of these legal actions. They're advancing the ball down the field. But that all changed on Wednesday when uh, currently indicted uh, former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. He sued Mueller uh, and the DOJ in federal court for uh, what he said was basically he accused Mueller and the DOJ of overstepping their authority in you know crafting this entire investigation. It was pretty. It was pretty wild. As if this uh, investigation couldn't get more exciting. Yeah. We throw in some new charges and and some additional wrinkles here. So. 
What exactly is Manafort claiming? Yeah, the 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 rapid nature of it is pretty funny. I think it's. I just want to enlighten the people. Uh, we just a little behind the scenes. We had two different stories, and they were all scrapped within uh, like I don't know five <laughs> minutes of the meeting adjourning. So that yeah, twenty eighteen is just uh, <laughs> fast out of the gate. Yeah. So anyway, back to Manafort. Uh, he sued both Mueller and the man who appointed him, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and he claimed that the two have basically run roughshod over the DOJ's internal regulations that govern special counsel. They, they've, they've overstepped their authority, they say. This all traces back to the October indictment of Manafort, and that basically accused him of... Uh, Various financial crimes dealing with um, work he did for foreign governments many years ago, but never created a direct nexus. Right. It wasn't directly linked to this alleged collusion with the Russians during the campaign. Which raised some eyebrows at the right. time. It was like, okay, this is definitely some shady stuff that man he didn't like register properly as a foreign lobbyist and things like that. But there wasn't a Russia smoking gun. And that is kind of at the root of the uh, suit that was filed now. Rosenstein's order that gave Mueller his authority to start the investigation said um, he's tasked with investigating Russia's interference in the campaign, as well as, and this is a quote from the from the order, any matters that arose or may arise directly from that investigation. So he's basically saying, look at Russia. And also, if you find anything else weird, you can prosecute that as well. Um, and he's uh, Manafort is now basically saying in this suit that that jurisdiction is like way too broad and it's not what special counsel is supposed to be about. The The sort of money quote from the suit is, the appointment order in effect purports to grant Mr. Mueller carte blanche to investigate and pursue criminal charges in connection with anything he stumbles across while investigating, no matter how remote from the specific matter identified as the subject of the appointment order. I mean, just, this is just my opinion, but... Mm -hmm. When you have a special counsel investigating something, yeah. is he just supposed to ignore... Like the criminal things he finds along the way, that seems like a weird thing for uh, law enforcement to do. Well, that is an interesting question, and it is instructive when we're talking about the contours of the suit. Um, he's basically asking for the indict his indictment to be completely tossed out, and for and of course for, he wants that, and yeah. for Mueller's like and for the scope of Mueller's investigation to strictly be Russia only stuff. And to support him, he basically says within the DOJ's regulations, you know. The attorney general is supposed to task a special counsel with a, quote, specific factual statement of the matter. And that, I guess, in his interpretation, just means like one thing. You can't say okay. one thing and anything else that arises well, from is the that, thing. Is that the rule? Like, is that the way that these things work? Is there case law to support that? Well, that, the th <clears throat> well it's funny because as we as we kind of know, in case you uh, you know haven't been reading the news, it's not very often that a special counsel is appointed. Right. Like, we can think back to like... Uh, Ken Starr investigating the Clintons, which was actually under a different law. That law is now expired. Yeah. But it just, it doesn't happen that often. And so therefore, there is not a lot of case law on it. And so when it gets to, you know, a, if a judge ends up looking at this, um, you know, they're basically going to have to just decide whether or not DOJ interpreted that correctly. And we know that, you know, courts generally there... give a lot of... So it kind of sounds like what Manafort is arguing is that uh, Mueller overstepped the specific purview of what this investigation should have been. And if you found anything else, well, you're going to need to refer that back to DOJ and somebody else will have to investigate it and take it through a different channel. Then. Yeah. And and there's there's all kinds of weird like rigmarole that we don't really have to get into. The other thing that I did want to um, point out as a possible sort of hurdle beyond just this idea that you know, DOJ can interpret its regulations as it wants, mm -hmm. is that, um, of course, as we know, as we've already said, uh, Manafort is already the subject of an ongoing criminal probe. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's very possible that a judge who looks at this, um, at, and, and this is a new civil case that yeah. he filed against Mueller, could say, you know, the idea of equitable restraint means like we kind of keep all legal matters under one umbrella. If you have a problem with the way Mueller is pursuing you, uh, you you're you're more than welcome to file counterclaims or some kind of oppositional mm, brief sure. in the context of that criminal probe rather than starting this whole new case. That's kind of me spitballing and some people are writing and talking about that. It was literally just filed yesterday, so we'll see. But, so what you know. what has the government said in response to in response to the the lawsuit? Uh, they issued a very brief statement yesterday, but a strongly worded one. They said the suit was uh, quote frivolous, but the defendant is entitled to file whatever he wants, which is <laughs> that's I mean, always true. There are lots of ways that you that's not a small thing. I mean, there are lots of ways you can like say that a lawsuit is uh, dubious. With I mean, frivolous has a specific meaning within sure. the law, and it's a pretty severe thing. Um, but if nothing else, I, as we've already kind of been alluding to. I think this creates a pretty hilarious dynamic right now for Manafort because he he's basically saying with this filing is like, OK, I may I may or may not have committed these crimes. But if I committed these crimes, you should not be pursuing me in this manner. You should. <laughs> right. You should unlearn what you have learned. He's well, going like Yoda on them. Or and something. I feel like a yeah. thing that I've read about this is that even, you know, even if they <clears throat> it's found that that Mueller uh, does not have jurisdiction to bring these claims, that, that he's exceeded the scope of his authority. Other prosecutors could bring these claims. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, they're out. We cannot York. unlearn this. Like yeah. we, we saw that we saw the stuff that he did. Yeah. And he, he, there are lots of questions uh, left to be answered by this. Um, you know, depending on who you ask, the thing could either be he could either be raising good faith questions about the role of, of, of a special counsel or it's like a publicity stunt. Political uh, theater is meant, something that I've seen. Meant to undermine. Right. I mean, Trump himself has called into question, you know, whether or not the Mueller investigation is a witch hunt. And that is within the DNA of this lawsuit. Sure, that's just throwing more logs on the fire. Right. And I don't mean to thing. suggest that's yeah. what he's doing. We'll let the process play out. I think it's worth noting that both the criminal complaint and the civil complaint have been assigned to Obama judges. So uh, let that rest in your mind uh, however you want. Um, but yeah, we're going to have to, we're going to have to wait to see a little more. Uh, I know, I think, uh, Sindhu, who we've had on the show is going to be doing a feature for us either today or tomorrow, which, uh, I'm very eager to read. I was talking with her about some of the people she was interviewing. Um, uh, an interesting case and one that has some implications, at least for one of the most sort of high profile, um, you know, legal proceedings that's going on right now. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Alex. We've all seen an episode of The Good Wife or another courtroom drama where an expert witness takes the stand, explains something complex, and wins the case by convincing the jury. But trial lawyers these days say a great expert witness may no longer be the ticket to a winning verdict. Modern jurors have been emboldened by Google in a sense that they have the same level of knowledge as an expert. So smart attorneys need to tweak their strategies to match this new reality. Here to walk us through the new courtroom landscape is senior trials reporter Dan Siegel. Welcome, Dan. Hi, guys. So, Dan, we were talking a little bit before we started rolling, and I think it would uh, behoove the listeners to know how you got the idea for this story. It was a great story we all enjoyed reading. I want to know how you thought to write it. Yeah, well, I was speaking to uh, one of the attorneys, Alan Canner, of Canner and Whitley, about this Johnson & Johnson talcum powder verdict. Yeah, we Which we've talked about on the show before. Mm-hmm, $417 yeah. million. And uh, it seemed like the jurors there kind of ignored the expert witnesses, not ignored, but you know, had their own take on the science, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And he was saying this is something he sees more and more 
And uh, yeah, he even had some other attorneys. He says, you know, I, I guys he goes against, he fought, you know, yeah. their defense, he's plaintiff side. And he's like, but you talk to them, they'll agree. And they did. Right. So to rewind a little bit, walk us through what, you know, the traditionally the role and what I think a trial attorney would hope uh, is the way that a juror sees what an expert witness does during the course of a trial. Right. So I think, you know, decades ago, 60s, 70s, 80s even, uh, you put up a drug company representative who, you know, has a PhD mm-hmm. or a Harvard, you know, educated economist or something. And the jurors would say, oh, well, this person has the credentials. Uh, they've been, you know, employed for a long time. I probably should trust them. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go with what they say. Uh, it really probably helped defense attorneys more, I would say, because they had the higher paid experts. And right. They, they had these sort of institutional credibility. But obviously, we're talking about this and how it's not like that anymore. So what's going on with modern juries? Why are they reacting so differently? Uh, I heard two sort of main explanations. One I would call structural external and one sort of internal personal. Structural is that there's the internet. Right. Uh, yeah. Everybody has Google in their pocket. Everybody looks up everything. Uh, judges say, don't look up the case, jurors still look up the case. Uh, so yeah. yet again, the internet ruins everything. Well, you had a good, you had a good anecdote in the story about like looking up person, like, like health symptoms in, on the internet. Like, look, like, my, yeah. my, my wife's a physician. She runs into this all the time, the WebMD sort of at aspect it's, of it. It's probably yeah. cancer. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> it's always cancer. Almost always. Yeah. Um, and so the, the personal explanation uh, would be something along the lines of, we all think we're great, you know, the mm-hmm. self-esteem movement. Uh, this is a little <laughs> bit of a curmudgeonly approach. I was sure. going to say, there's a couple parts in here where they get dangerously close to like just throwing millennials under the Kids bus. Like these in every, days kind of comments, yeah. They're bringing their avocado toast into the jury box. <laughs> it's, it's unrelenting now, but... Millennials are killing expert witnesses. <laughs> Let's uh, edit to the list, yeah. Let's edit to the list. Uh, I, I like the passage where... You said talking about everyone perceiving themselves as an expert. Uh, someone like mentioned Fredo from Godfather 2 being like, I know things, I'm smart. It was... Yeah. Telling, telling anecdote. I mean, there is this psychological theory I've read about a bit where the people that know the least think they know the most. Sure. So I there's got to be a little bit of that going on. I think that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's the one, yeah. Uh, and it's basically that when you don't know anything, you don't even know how much you don't know. Yeah. And there might be, so yeah, there might be something to that here. So for the piece, you spoke to an author who wrote a book called uh, The Death of Expertise. Can you sort of walk us through what his thesis is here for, for, for this issue? Right. So that's Tom Nichols. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd heard of his uh, explanation before. He has this book, The Death of Expertise. One of the attorneys I spoke to actually mentioned him as like, you know, this guy has figured it out. You got to speak to him. And he's really on more, I think, the personal explanation. He sort of downplays, not completely, but somewhat the role of the internet. You know, it's he thinks more. It's just that everything's so special, like the Fredo Corleone. <laughs> I'm smart. I can do things. And his, he thinks he sees sort of a, a cultural decline where you know, 50 years ago, your plumber didn't feel the need to diagnose his medical problems and your doctor wouldn't try to fix his plumbing. There you go. And he right. thinks everybody tries to do everything now. I don't know if I agree completely with his thesis, but that's what he sees. Yeah. So are there any other theories besides um, this one posited by Nichols and just that the internet's ruining everything? Right. Well, I think what I see is just the history is people have some justified reasons to trust institutions less. Uh, the big thing that pops out to me is smoking and lung cancer. Mm-hmm. People were told by very respected doctors for a long time, it's safe, don't worry about it. Well, it wasn't. So you maybe can't blame them as much when people have started to say, maybe I don't trust the drug company representative. 
or the highly paid expert in court as much anymore. And sure. we see this just generally in politics, too. There's just been an erosion of trust in like members of Congress and the president and all sorts of offices. And even the press, believe it or not. <laughs> I don't thought? believe it, guys. Get I out of the booth. do not believe that at all. Get out of the booth. <laughs> So it sounds like, uh, you know, it. I think a, a, a casual listener here would would say, you know, d- well, what do I do to to mitigate this? You know, do I do I not put an expert witness on the stand? I mean, could you walk us through what how trial lawyers should deal with with this sort of erosion of trust in in, in experts? Right. I mean, it's unavoidable. You're not going to not put on an expert witness if right. you have a highly technical case. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd like to see a patent case. I was with just no about experts. to say a patent case <laughs> yeah. talking about transistors. Like, <laughs> yeah, no experts in yeah, that. Don't yeah. need them. Right. So you're, you're going to have to do it. But one thing you can do, I heard, is use a lay opinion witness. It's under a different civil rule of evidence, uh, but it's basically someone, for example, like a facilities manager, sort of a janitorial maintenance staff. Maybe you're defending a chemical leaching suit or something, mm-hmm. and instead of bringing in a paid expert to say there's no way this chemical is what caused this person's disease. You also, or, you know, instead bring in this guy's like, I worked at this factory for 30 years. I, you know, tap on the pipes every day (laughs) and they don't leak. And I promise you they don't leak. And apparently jurors respond a lot better to that sort of firsthand personal experience than someone they know is being paid to tell them the You can see that there's like, I don't know if gravitas is the word, but you could see them being, I don't know, more relatable to like an average juror or something. It's an interesting point. So what happens if you are in like a patent case, like we mentioned a minute ago, and you have to have someone who's a traditional expert? Is there different ways you can present what they're, they're saying? Are there ways that you can sort of line up better with what juries respond to? Well, it's sort of a cliche when you talk to trial attorneys, but they all want to talk about it's telling a story. Sure. Uh, it's, you know, telling the broader story of the case with, the, you know, your facts, you know, getting your story across to the jury. And I think it just fits in with that. They say, you know, you want to make sure, one, your expert doesn't contradict any of your op- opinion or fact witnesses. Yeah. Uh, that contradiction would really sink you. And two, you know, like one of the things is with a great athlete, they make it look easy. With a great expert, they make the complicated sound like common sense. Yeah. And it's not so much a strategy as something you just have to have them do. Right. So you put an expert witness on the stand and the jury disregards what they say. What can the judge do to help you? What can the appellate courts do? Sort of walk us through the the steps that can mitigate this kind of problem. Right. I mean, you don't want to put on the facts just because you're worried the jury's not going to agree with you. You want to put in the record... Uh, as we began talking about with the Johnson & Johnson talcum powder verdict in California, uh, for a little background, it was $417 million verdict, one on the theory that J&J's talcum powder uh, caused this woman's ovarian cancer. Which, as we talked about on a previous show, is not exactly supported by the evidence. The science is it's pretty mixed. Right. Uh, and I've spoken actually to scientists for another story. And you know, even you talk to scientists, the ones who see an association, they wouldn't tell you it's super strong. Mm-hmm. And sort of what happened is the jury sided with the plaintiffs. They said this evidence may not be super strong, but... It's a very compelling emotional case. The woman, like, died just recently. Yeah, Right. So, and we don't know exactly what they're thinking, but maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. But the judge did, in fact, throw it out in a post-trial motion for lack of supporting scientific evidence. Right. So, J&J, they put their evidence in. The jury maybe wasn't persuaded, but the judge was. And at the end of the day, that is what is going to sort of... Do a better job. So in like a post-facts litigation world, <laughs> the judge can still sort of sort of help you out when that when you get bitten by this. Of, of course, and yeah. you know once it gets up to appeal, something like this, if they're reviewing a de novo, mm-hmm. the appellate appellate court is just going to look at the evidence and are going to have more of a respect for the scientific evidence for the experts than a jury probably will. 
I hate that we're in a post-facts world. <laughs> but that was an optimistic. Level. That was an optimistic way to leave it. I yeah. think it was. It's yeah. a good good place to leave us. Thanks for being with us, Dan. We have a really unusual one to end out the show today. I know you were going to tell us all about it, Alex. What happened? Yeah, this comes to us from across the pond, the uh, the uh, London Bureau. Um, we don't talk. We don't take a lot of stories from over there. Um, and we don't do a lot of insurance stories either, which is what this is. But Which I, sounds dull, but I yeah, promise, listen, yeah, it is dull not. Nothing dull about this story. No. Uh-oh. That was a bad pun. There's bad a company. Pun. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Nice. <laughs> There's a company called Neuromax uh, in England. They're an energy company. They had a fire at one of their plants uh, in late 2015, and they've been uh, in a legal battle uh, with Zurich Insurance, which we've heard of, um, about uh, being compensated for that damage. They say that that Zurich owes them like six and a half million dollars for damage in in the fire. Zurich is uh, declining to pay it, and for a number of reasons, they're declining to do that. The most interesting of which is that the company did not disclose that one of its major shareholders had recently been jailed for maliciously wounding someone with a machete. That's that's crazy. Yeah. You don't hear it every day. No. So just just, so, just so I, I, I was a little long-winded getting in there. I just want to be very clear. <clears throat> a major insurance company is refusing to pay right. a company for a for a fire that happened because one of their uh, shareholders attacked somebody with a machete and this was not disclosed to them. So I have so many questions. Yeah. Uh, let's start with this one. So is what the insurance company basically saying, like, you lied and avoided your policy, and the reason we care about this attack is because you could be a risk at the workplace? There are lots of – they raise other matters that are a lot – that are way too boring for this segment. Um, they basically said that the company, like, uh, had, like, some – you know, misgivings with like this doesn't involve machetes. Just keep going. Environmental <laughs> regulations, like they, they they got in trouble for those a couple of times yeah. and mm-hmm. didn't disclose it, which like is is germane to the issue of a fire. But then also, uh, this guy, this guy, his name is Sean Morfitt. He's right. known what's known in uh, British insurance parlance as a a shadow director. He basically owned like twenty percent of the shadow company. director machete attack. That's is the name right. of my band. Uh, um. In its in its uh, in its latest filing, Zurich said this. Mr. Morfitt's conviction for unlawful and malicious wounding should have been disclosed by the claimant to the defendant because they were material to the moral hazard that the claimant would pose as an insured in circumstances where Mr. Morfitt was a shadow director of a claimant. So remarkably British. Malicious wounding. (laughs) Malicious wounding, yeah. So this sounds like an upstanding company, we presume, that has, has, I mean, it's not like some crazy thing. So... They've hired a guy who attacked someone with a machete. Do we know about that attack? Like, how in the world does that happen? They haven't actually hired. I mean, he just he just like right, he, he just he, he just controls a lot okay. of what's going on, and that is that is relevant for the for purposes of. I have to think the person stuff. survived, or we wouldn't be calling it wounding. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was just a wounding, uh, and I <laughs> just 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 a wounding, merely a flesh wound, as uh, Monty <laughs> Python informed us. Um, Wow, now I'm getting like all kinds of black, this guy like in the Black Knight costume. Uh, right, right, right. Uh, Let's avoid that. Guy. So avoid what that exactly happened with this this attack? Uh, I mean, I, I mean, it, it happened in 2010, that much I can tell you. And I just think that it's, it's, it's really like, it really encapsulates the dichotomy of the United Kingdom. Because this is a civilization that, you know, sort of defined 
and granted unto us like the 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 very idea of a polite society, but also contains like skinhead hooligans who like riot in the streets when Stoke City gets uh, you know relegated from their Premier League. And apparently a guy who got mad at somebody and attacked them with a machete in broad daylight. Yeah, and now you know causing problems for uh, for his investment portfolio. I mean, let's call a spade a spade here. This is another reason not to attack someone with a machete. <laughs> yeah, that that's if you a- needed one more <laughs> reason. <laughs> So yeah, uh, it's ongoing in courts over there. Uh, I'm an educated man, but uh, the intricacies of British insurance law elude me at this moment. Uh, Guys, do you have to... anything to disclose from your background now? Do you, anything you want to tell me? Uh, I just have one 16-inch metal item I have to clean out of my desk drawer, and then we can have a uh, discussion about this. All right, well, we're going to wrap up the podcast so that you can get your house in order, Alex. All right, great. Good show back, guys. Thanks for being with me, Bill. Thanks, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guests, Daniel Siegel, and contributing reporters, Michael McInerney, John Hill, Evan Weinberger, and Richard Crump. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about on today's show, check out our website at law360.com podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find our content. Thanks, and join us again next week.